Welcome to the Future of Medicine podcast, presented by Predictive, the first DNA-based digital twin, to predict and prevent over 22,000 diseases. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Future of Medicine. In this podcast, we explore how technology and science are shaping the medicine of the future. From genomics to wearable devices, artificial intelligence to at-home diagnosis and treatments, our guests will share how they foresee the future and how they contribute to it. Today, I have the chance to have with me uh, Michelle Colucci. Michelle is a lawyer, serial entrepreneur, and the founder of Digital DX Ventures, an early-stage venture fund investing in AI in data-enabled healthcare. Digital DX has seven portfolio companies focused on areas such as breast cancer, kidney health, mental health, Alzheimer's and brain health, lung fluid, and women's health. And the firm is located in Silicon Valley on the renowned Sand Hill Road. I invited Michelle today to talk about what she's looking at when sourcing tech companies and how she envisions the future of medicine. So Michelle, welcome to the future of medicine. Um, can you tell us more about your background and how you turned from a lawyer to an entrepreneur and an investor? Absolutely. Well, I think I've always been a serial entrepreneur uh, since the, the day I started, <laughs> uh, from the day I came out. There's lots of you know entrepreneurial things I like to do. My children have always been the same. Uh, but um, the, the legal education, I think, is really helpful because no matter what you do in life, right, especially as a woman, it enables you to um, to be able to negotiate, understand what you're doing and why and so forth. Um, so I actually have been a serial entrepreneur. I've been in many different verticals. Uh, I've been in media and entertainment. I've been in retail and I've been in legal and technology. And now I'm med technology, which is actually very similar to legal technology. Um, I, I, so I would consider myself more like a cross vertical expert, more focused on the business and how to grow businesses and how to identify partnerships and how to um, really drive the bottom line. Uh, so uh, I think that's probably how I, I transitioned. It, actually, an interesting story. One of my investors in a previous company of mine, uh, who was the most successful investor in this area, um, I had sent him some companies and one of which was one of his most successful companies. And he said, you know, you really understand this. Um, I think you should be investing in this area and I'll help and I'll back you, start you out. I'm going to be retiring at some point. But so that's really what he did. He was the first investor in um, Matera, in GeneWeave and Shurex. And I said, I'm one of those companies. And so I looked around and I, I had two friends that, you know, passed away from late diagnostics. Uh, and I said, this is just a really big need. There's no reason why we can't identify um, what we are, we have a propensity to contract given our uh, given our history and our, our family history, our electronic health record, or all the social determinants of health, all this kind of stuff. We should have predictive, we should have accurate early diagnostics, right? And we should be able to monitor. And, and so really uh, trying to um, attack that entire continuum of what could be wrong with me, what is wrong with me, and is it still wrong with me is something that I think is incredibly important. It gets five to 7% of the funding, but it guides about 60 to 70% of the entire patient journey. If you get it wrong, or if you miss it, the chances of your survival can be reversed, you know, from like 8% to 20. I mean, it's very scary um, if we don't have uh, the diagnostic early and accurate. Uh, and so that's our focus earlier, less invasive, less expensive, more accurate, enabled by AI and data. Oh, yeah. Well, that's 
<laughs> That's great. Um, so you founded Digital DX to focus on those technical technology-enabled diagnostics. Um, at what stage uh, do you invest? What is the average amount of investment, the range of valuation of the companies? Just in case some entrepreneurs would listen and would like to send you their, their pitch deck. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we invest in the seed and early stage. We don't, in, we don't invest in what we call a science experiment. So that's what we have non-dilutive grants for, non-dilutive funding. But we do invest in if you have something and it works on a certain sample size and you've got great results, you know, your sensitivity, specificity in the 90th percentile, and you really are solving a very big problem um, and you've got some IP around it, then we want to, we want to talk to you. So that's kind of how, where, how we look at the initial investment. Um, we do like to follow on with our companies. We like to own about 10 to 15% uh, at our companies that exit. Um, and um, so initial checks will be started at 100,000 and go or up to a million, depending on the company. And uh, and then ideally follow on um, with that percentage to exit. Okay. And uh, as an investor, you were mentioning IP. Um, what is the first thing you look at uh, when you meet an entrepreneur or on Zoom or in person? Uh, is it about the long-term potential? Is it the traction, the team, the patterns? So it's such a big combination of those, right? Um, there are some high-level uh, critical uh, items that one has to have to make a good investment and have a good exit with that investment. After all, at the end of the day, what everybody has to remember, especially entrepreneurs, is that we are not, this is not our money. This is other people's money. We have responsibility to make uh, a profit and be good stewards of their money. We have a fiduciary responsibility to manage that capital um, in an intelligent way. So we do a lot of diligence. We're very careful with our investments. We're very um, strategic. Uh, but what we really want to see in companies is what's, what's going to make a company successful, right? It is the approach of the, the team, it's, is it diversified? Is there diversity of thought and experience on the team? You know, we focus on uh, gender diversity a lot in our fund um, because we have different skill sets uh, and it's really important that you have all of them to ensure that you consider everything um, along the way and make sure you plan for everything. All the possible things that could go wrong, all the possible ways of looking at something, it's very important that the team is diverse for that purpose. We look at how, how defensible the intellectual property is because being you know first second third to market is not great if you know if you don't have any defensible position um, because there's always somebody with more money um, that can you know clobber you so you have to have something and a lot of companies by the way are sold because of the value of their ip and their defensible position for a certain period of time i mean you wouldn't have drugs out there if that wasn't the case right so we really focus on the defensibility of the how, how solid the, the IP is, who you know who filed it, have they have they clustered it, have they um, have they put a moat around it? You know what's their strategy on the IP? Um, we also look at the likelihood uh, and necessity of regulatory. So is this a lab developed test? Is this an FDA CLIA lab? What are they using? You know, um, aid to physician. What what's the way they're going to have this approved and then what's the way they're going to have it reimbursed um you know is it is there are the existing reimbursement codes is this a de novo do we have to figure this out from scratch you know um uh, could it be a breakthrough a designation uh, that could then carry along with it some reimbursement opportunities are talking about some really interesting um, legislation to enable that right now um and so you know 
what are the what we are risk we're all about risk right we have to reduce risk as much as we can because again we're using other people's money for this so how can we reduce risk we reduce risk by identifying how how strong the patents are you know how great the team is um experience you know uh, who their advisors are do they know what they're doing because at the end of the day i might not know if a specific approach through telomeres or something is exactly right you know but i do rely on my nobel laureate who knows that and i said call and say you know what do you think so if i see someone on the advisor of the team you know who's really well versed in the field and a leader a key opinion leader and they're backing it that gives me more comfort right mm -hmm. so we look at the quality of the advisors quality of the team and then i have to look at you know what's the risk that this won't be reimbursed what's the risk that this won't pass regulatory so we focus on like the non-invasive methodologies because then you're really just validating the sensitivity specificity you're not identifying whether it hurts a person when it goes in their body because it's non-invasive it's like you know in your urine and your saliva and your you spit your breath, you know, all those kinds of things are outside scans. Um, so focusing on those areas that we do, which is earlier, less invasive, more accurate diagnostics enabled by AI and data, those are the ways that we take. That's why we came with our investment philosophy. We reduce our risk based on those um, tenants. Okay. And amongst uh, all the entrepreneurs and, and I guess also healthcare professionals and experts, uh, advisors, um, how do you see technology changing medicine today already? I mean, yesterday and today, uh, along the years, how all that is changing? How do you see it changing? And what's the reaction of clinicians, hospitals? Do they go fast enough or are they open to it? Are they uh, risk, uh, uh, risk averse? Or what's your feeling on that? Well, I think there's a couple things that you have to take into account. One of our tenets is more accurate diagnostics, right? So if a physician is faced with a diagnostic that has a 60% sensitivity specificity in the 60th versus in the 90th, then the chances that they will change their behavior are pretty good, especially if it's a non-invasive versus an invasive methodology. So the idea is to really try and figure out what's going to change the behavior of the physician in order to figure out if it's going to have adoption or not. And that's why we we add that you know the, the level of accuracy we want to see so it gives physicians confidence that um, they can use this test and be you know and feel comfortable that they're doing the best for their patient. Obviously, if it's in the guidelines, even better. But um, but if you talk about the other question, which is how medicine how we see it changing, you know, my partner used to say you know which is funny because I remember this when we were growing up you know you should take a a stick and put it in your mouth with the light and look at your throat and you know diagnose it's like okay they had not enough data now they have too much data and the reality is with data comes liability so in order to what we focus on is helping a doctor make a better decision with that data because at the end of the day you know they need to know how to use it they they're not technic they're not technologists they're not uh, you know in this area so we really have to find the companies that are groundbreaking that will help a doctor with confidence um say this is exactly what's wrong or this is where you are in the stage of this illness this is or this is the, the exactly the type of drug that will work for you as opposed to someone else so this personalized medicine so technology is changing medicine in so many ways i mean it's changing it you know it's basically we look at it uh, today is the intersection of of biology chemistry and technology and and that's how i we see the 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 changes that that are being implemented and and when you look at technology it could be in gathering data like in the sensor-based world right wearables 
um, that kind of data monitoring. It could be in the algorithms that you're using, random forest AI calculations to change to amplify signals. It could be, you know, in using, let's say, chemistry to replace a biology, you know, biological process or something. There's many different ways technology can be applied. Um, you know, adding different data sets, whether you're talking about you know, your zip code where you live or your electronic health record or all these different kinds of things, your body mass index, your, you know, all these kinds of things that um, the confluence of which can help um, really personalize the diagnosis and the targeted treatment um, are other ways that, you know, technology through these different data sets and the overlays of different data sets and can really, um, can really clarify the right uh, answer, right? The decision and the path forward. Yeah, and you were talking about all that massive amount of data uh, that uh, clinicians have access to today. And uh, we were talking about wearables. Uh, and you could imagine you could get diagnosed at some point just from your home, from the comfort of your home. Uh, and last year, um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a lot of people had to use for the very first time telemedicine. And when I say people, it's patients, but also uh, physicians. Um, have you seen for, within your companies, uh, your portfolio companies, or when discussing around, uh, that there was uh, really an impact of COVID-19 on the way people turn to technology? Yes, I mean, our focus is on non-invasive. So of course it helped all of our companies because that's part of our philosophy is we want, people don't want to have, you know, be poked with needles time and time again. They hate needles, I hate needles, everyone does, my sons do. So, you know, we want to find a less invasive methodology and those also happen to scale during COVID. Now, you know, in general, when people are sick, they don't want to go be dragged into the doctor again and again and, and you know or go to the er right the minute there's something because they don't know what's wrong if you're a way to monitor that you know the at-home monitoring uh, market is really um picked up and obviously and and exploded in the way that it sort of accelerated the explosion you know, through telehealth and at-home monitoring it was always going to come it was just a question of how long it was going to take and that kind of accelerated the the realization of how important this is and frankly the humanity because the problem with it before was it wasn't getting reimbursed. So people weren't developing or, or innovating for that opportunity because they wouldn't get paid for it. So now that there are CPT codes that reimburse you, you know, about 70, 80% of diagnostics are reimbursed through Medicare. So now that there are codes that reimburse you to uh, have a telemedicine visit or, or do an at-home test, um, that has changed the landscape considerably and it's created a lot more innovation. And we're seeing just some really incredibly interesting companies in this space um, that are making use of, uh, of the fact that they can use technology to really deliver novel ways of diagnosing illness and, and, and monitoring uh, progress. That's very exciting. And uh, yeah, there are so many entrepreneurs and on the other side, on the hospitals and clinicians side in, in general, what do you think their biggest change, challenges are today? Changes or challenges? Chal sorry, challenges. Challenges, yeah. I mean, uh, technology, not in terms of disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, of course. Well, I think their biggest challenges are getting comfortable, first of all, with AI and machine learning. Um, and that can be done in a number of ways. Sometimes people don't necessarily trust an algorithm, but I think if you have adequate data, you can um, get past that. 
Um, the other biggest challenge is just the barriers to entry uh, of, of, of the, you know, they've been doing it one way for a long time. So to change their behavior um, is a big thing. Uh, so if you can find ways to incrementally move them in that direction, it's better. Um, or if you can understand what their current, you know, flow is right now and try and fit into that flow, that's a smarter way to do it. Um, because I think their challenge is bringing in another system that half the people don't learn and that they spend so much money for and that never gets used. I talked to one of the big healthcare systems and she said, you know, Michelle, I would rather buy a, an inferior system that everybody uses than a superior one that I can't get all my doctors to use. So it's a, there's a realistic component that goes with it. And I think when companies do scale, they have to, they can't underestimate the importance of the key opinion leaders um, as a marketing tool, right? They really have to understand that they need someone who speaks the same language to explain why they should adopt this new technology, what it means for their patients. Because at the end of the day, Doctors are trying to serve their patients. They're trying to serve the patients and also make sure they get paid for what they're doing. And if you can help them with those two things, I think they're very, and you can have actually some people who are leading in that area say, yeah, this really works. Then you're in a better position to influence and impact the behavior and the acceptance of what you're asking them to do. Um, so that's probably what I would say their biggest challenge is really um, fitting whatever the new technologies are into patient flow and the user interface and recognizing the value it brings to their patients. Mm. So this is for today. Um, let's move into the future. How do you envision the future of medicine, the future of healthcare in five, 10, 20 years? Because we, we talked about diagnosis, at-home diagnosis solution that are coming up now. How will it be in 10, 20 years? Will we still go to hospitals? Will there still be hospitals? I think you're never going to replace the patient-doctor relationship because it's so critically important. Um, having information written down or read to you um, isn't half as impactful as having a conversation with someone who you trust um, telling you, what it is and why it is and being able to kick the tires and ask questions. It's the same thing with lawyers, right? Lawyers, some of the work can be, you know, can be uh, replicated with technology, but the, the real thinking, the real innovating and the real conversation and it cannot yet. So, um, right, I see in the future, I mean, I do see that we have so much information data that we will probably get, you know, a call from our doctor's office saying, you need to come in right now or an ambulance come to your door and knock on it and say, you need to come with me right now. Because I think that all the data that we are giving off through iPhones or other uh, wearables or other kinds of signaling we're using, Amazon, whatever it is, we'll be able to predict uh, what is going on with us before we have symptoms, which is very exciting to be able to know that because oftentimes when you have the symptoms, it's too late or it has a much bigger impact than if you can get it you know, early enough. So I think we'll have earlier diagnostics um, and proactive. Uh, and then I think we will still have the hospitals and still have the um, the uh, in doctor's visits, but I think hospitals will be um, much less prevalent because we'll be able to do so much in the home. And to be honest, people, you know, you 
there's all sorts of things that that are not always great that come out of staying in the hospital, whether it's, you know, catching something or not being around your family or, you know, with COVID, it's been really hard. You've had these people go in the hospital. They can't, some, in some cases, they can't bring their, their husband or their mother or their child like, with them. And so that's really... Um, horrible and it also impacts their ability to understand what's going on and to recover so if we can do more in the home on the diagnostic front and really prevent a lot of the er visits so the er's are not clogged because they shouldn't be there's so many people in the er that don't need to be in the er but then sometimes the people that should be in the er are not so really to triage i think uh, technology is going to be a phenomenal opportunity for us to triage the severity of illness um, and the onset of illness and proactively and direct people in the right place in the right location at the right time and improve the outcomes uh, in a very significant and profound way. Um, that's where I see us going. Um, that sounds super, super exciting. Uh, well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts and expertise with us. Uh, best, best of luck for Digital DX and your portfolio companies. And thanks everyone for joining this podcast on the future of medicine and see you next week. Thank you and good health. This was the Future of Medicine podcast presented by Predictive, the first DNA-based digital twin to predict and prevent over 22,000 diseases. Learn more on www.predictivecare.com.